The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The teaching God has for us in today's passage deals primarily with our thought life, and then it will deal with our practices, how we live, but it deals more heavily with our thought life, and so we'll spend more time on that this morning. But let me say this up up front. This passage is actually a great grace of God to help us, to guide us, and to guard us. Now, to get on the lane of those principles meant to help us, to guide us, and to guard us, we will have to do some uncomfortable self-examination. But don't hate that, because it's meant to lead us towards the good things God has for us. So we have to be honest up front. Our minds, our thoughts are often not what they ought to be. They are often not what's best for us. In fact, if we're candid, we have serious problems with our minds. In 2018, I read a very interesting article in Time Magazine by Haley Swetlin Edwards, and in it she wrote about a new company being started called Boundless Minds. The company is being started in Silicon Valley, but it's not your normal uh, tech-savvy people. They're two neuroscientists. And they're starting the company Boundless Minds because they've found that our minds are quite bound by the technology we tend to affix ourselves to. The point of their company, then, is to help unleash or unbind our minds. Here's what they wrote. In a previous generation, we thought pathogens and cars were killing us. Now we realize it's social media. Every day we check our phones an average of 47 times. That's every 19 minutes of our waking lives. We spend roughly five hours total peering at their silvery glow. There's no good consensus as to what this means for our children's brains or our adult mood or our future democratic institutions. But many are seized these days with a feeling that it's not good. Last year, the American Psychological Association found that 65% of us polled believe that periodically unplugging would improve our mental health. And in 2017, the University of Texas found that the mere presence of a phone on the desk, even if it was face down, was mentally distracting to us no matter what else we were doing. The New York University psychologist Adam Alter describes the current state of tech obsession as a full-blown epidemic. So even if we just started there, our minds, though boundless in potential, tend to be rather bound by distraction. So though our minds are beautiful in God's creation made after his image, they are broken by sin and sin's tendencies. Mark Twain once wrote, What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long, the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. We might amend Twain's comments some. The, The Bible talks about our mind and our heart somewhat interchangeably. We tend to not think of them that way. But the inner life, Jesus tells us in Mark 7, what proceeds out of the inner life is what actually defiles us. Our evil thoughts is the first thing he lists. So our very heart and mind is corrupt. So we need need help. And we need real help. 
Have you noticed the Christian salesmen who uh, offer the power of positive thinking? (laughs) We need something much better than that. We need more than just plucky optimism or faith in ourselves or visualization that we hope will become a reality. We need divine power that can bring us transformational change leading to peace. And praise God, that's what our passage offers us today. The title of today's sermon is Good Thoughts and Best Practices. In Philippians 4, 8 through 9, we'll see both. Very simple outline today. (laughs) Point number one is verse 8, good thoughts. Point number two is verse 9, best practices. So let's look in verse 8, good thoughts. Finally, brothers. And then he lists here, and if you have the notes that I emailed out, you'll see the list kind of put in line. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. Hey, we only have two verses. Let's really notice every word. (laughs) Notice the first word in verse 8 is finally. Why does he say finally when there's another 12 or 13 verses to go? Because this is the end of the moral exhortations of the gospel. So all the rest of the verses, verses 10 through 21, he's going to explain what's going on in his life, which still has implications for us. But these are the quick staccato implications of the gospel. Since Christ is who he is and has done what he's done, here's what should be changing in us. And in verse 8, it's our thoughts. There's one governing verb in verse 8. It's the word think in English. It's the word logizomai in Greek. It's where we get our English word logarithm, and that will help you understand the kind of word it is. Arkent Hughes writes, it's deliberate and prolonged contemplation as if one were weighing a mathematical problem. And based on my scores from Algebra 2, I'd be thinking about the math problem for a very, very, very long time. So verse 8, think with great contemplation and energy about these kind of things. Hey, if we're going to notice all the words, did you notice how often the word whatever is repeated? It's repeated before every virtue. Why? Because God's not giving a list of prescriptions. You have to think about this exact thing or this exact thing. No, he's given a list of principles. Anything that falls under this category, anything that falls under that category, anything that falls under that category. You can picture in your mind then very wide highway lanes. They're always being constructed, but here are the lanes that are the good ones to drive on. And a lot can fall on these lanes. Let's not forget how good God is. Remember when God made the Garden of Eden, how many things were forbidden? Just just one, right? God's character is still the same. If you have an idea of Christianity like, oh, it's so forbidding and it restricts from, the exact opposite of true. Christianity has wide highways of God's goodness. The restrictions are always man-made, not God-made. So here are wide highways of principles for whatever falls under these beautiful categories. And yet, because of our sinfulness, we may be tempted to veer off even those wide lanes. Now we have to look at each one of the things listed. So, number one, whatever is true. The word is aletheis, and it means something more than just true as opposed to false. It means true in the ethical realm. Whatever is morally correct, whatever is actually right. You'll notice a lot of the words are near synonyms. So the second one, whatever is honorable, that is noble or worthy of respect, the word is semnos. The third one, whatever is just, it's the word diakaios, which is normally translated righteous, whatever is right. Whatever accords with truth in practice. 
The fourth word, whatever is pure, that means things that are not tainted with evil. One commentator writes, that which does not stain the conscience, which is a good description of it. Things that are not impure, obviously. So in in the first four virtues, we have moral truth, things worthy of respect, third, things that are righteous, and fourth, things that are pure, they're untainted with evil. Let's praise God that he's given us highway lanes of that which is truly good for us. But let's also pause in our moment of relativism to make very clear that since these things are correct, their contrasts are by definition wrong. If something is true, then the opposite would be false. If something is morally true, the opposite would be immoral and false. If something is worthy of respect or honorable, then its opposite would be dishonorable. If something is right, then its opposite would be unrighteous. If something is pure, then its opposite would be impure. Perhaps you're already thinking, how dare you be so (laughs) narrow-minded as to say that there are things that are correct and that their opposite is wrong. How dare you give a straitjacket that limits my freedom? Let me pause on both objections. Those who might be thinking, that's so narrow-minded to say that only certain things are right. Let me ask you honestly, is anyone anywhere in the world right now doing something that you think they should not be doing? If so, then apparently you think there are virtues that transcend time and space, that transcend cultures. In fact, you have to affirm it even to deny it. But if you think it's a straitjacket, then pause for a second and remember that some constraints are actually a means to liberation. In our house in Michigan, there was a pond not too far from our house, and the kids would always run down there, and they wanted me to show them how to fish. What they didn't understand is I grew up in Detroit, and I don't know how to fish. (laughs) So we would go down there, and they would look at me, and I would look at them, and we would look at fish. But imagine you wanted to rescue a fish, and your attitude was, oh, that poor fish, He is constricted under the enslaving bonds of water. Let me free him and liberate him. And you reached in with a net and you got the fish out and dumped him on the grass and said, you're free. With that one eye as he's flopping in his final breaths, he would look up to you and say, you're an idiot. (laughs) Water is the constraint I need to live. That's where I breathe, right? In reality, What we tend to think of as straitjackets might actually be the constraints you need for life. The the thoughts that are good, that are righteous, that are honorable, that are pure, are life-giving gifts. They're not constraints on your freedom. Did you know that actually to try to counter God's life-giving constraints is actually to harm yourself and others? The Bible says that if I reject what God calls true, I harm myself. But did you know it also harms others? 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Romans 1 verse 32 says that God righteously has wrath not only for those who do wrong things, but also those who give approval to them. Have you ever considered that if you are encouraging someone 
to do what God calls wrong, you are aiding their harm and destruction. It is actually analogous to clapping at someone's funeral. It is not only wildly inappropriate, it is sickly unloving. You see, if you recognize that God has things that are true and good for us and life-affirming, then why would you ever celebrate what opposes what God makes to affirm and aid our true freedom? You're in fact hurting others while claiming to care for them. So far then, we've seen four virtues. Moral truth, what is worthy of respect, what is righteous, and what is pure. And brothers and sisters, anything contrary to those things are harmful and wrong. But now the remaining two virtues, you maybe have noticed on my notes, I put a space in between them. And that's because they're different in kind. The first four virtues are revealed in scripture, but the next two are gifts found in culture. All right, so the first four virtues revealed in scripture, the next two gifts found in culture, and that's why they have an if qualifier on them both. Here, number five, whatever is lovely. These are things that are gifts found in culture. That's why Gordon Fee writes this. This word could refer to a Beethoven symphony as well as the work of Mother Teresa among the poor of Calcutta. The former is lovely and enjoyable. The latter is admirable as well as moral. Fee is 100% right. That's how this Greek word is used. It's not the Greek word alethes, which is normally for love. It's the Greek word prosphiles, which is for things that are attractive or pleasing. Gifts found in God's common grace in culture. Now the next one, number six, whatever is commendable, again, is a word used to describe gifts found in culture. These are things that even those around us would speak well of. They're things worthy of commendation. Now did you notice what numbers five and six have that numbers one through four don't? They have if qualifiers. Do you know why that is? Remember the first four our virtues revealed in scripture, but the next two are gifts found in culture. And if they're gifts found out in the world, that means they must be identified with discernment. That's why we have these two phrases, if there's any excellence. So there are things in God's world that are wonderful gifts, that are lovely, but you have to sift them with discernment. Are they excellent? There are things in God's world that are commendable that people speak well of, and some of them deserve to be spoken well of, but notice the next qualifier. If there's anything truly worthy of praise. Now here God is giving us principles that we have to use with discernment. You ever notice that some people, they don't like principles. They want to be told exactly what to do, and that has a place. Other people find principles very freeing, In either case, God here has given us principles. Howie Hendricks wrote it this way, rules are many, principles are few, rules change, principles never do. That's why God gave principles here. He knew the world would change, but we're to use discernment in how we partake of God's good gifts in the world. So here are the principles again, don't want you to miss them, moral truth, worthy of respect, righteous and pure, But then the last two are qualified, lovely, admirable, if they have moral excellence, and if we can praise God for them. 
Since God is expecting us to use discernment as we enjoy his world, we can now make a few specific applications. Let me make one. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, but in the eye of the creator. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, but in the eye of the creator. There are things that are truly lovely and truly admirable when they're put through the filter of the creator's view of what's excellent and worthy of praise. They're not actually open to our imbuing them with our opinion that they're lovely. The implications of this are many. I'll give you one example. Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Mahaney have written a book called Girl Talk, Mother-Daughter Conversations on Biblical Womanhood. In it, they write this. Our culture, our American culture, puts forth a false standard of beauty and a false message about beauty. But ultimately, it's the sin of our hearts that motivates us to believe them. Notice we're calling beauty what God does not call beauty, and yet we're claiming we're right. We desperately want success, recognition, significance, importance, and approval. For mothers and daughters, Scripture reveals the falsehood and the futility of the quest for physical beauty. Proverbs 31.30 says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Did you know the Hebrew word for charm there actually means physical form, not charisma or personality? So it's saying physical form can be deceitful. We have a phrase in American, a similar proverb, don't judge a book by its cover. It can mislead you. And yet, nowhere in the Bible, women are instructed to wish for, ask for, or strive for physical beauty, nor does the Bible present physical beauty as a blessing for those who have it. But in our culture, in many ways, we convince people that form is actually what true beauty is. I'm raising a daughter, so I have a great interest in these things. And I read an article about how Disney princesses that are the protagonists tend to be drawn as physically beautiful. And the villains tend to be drawn as physically ugly. Thus, they're correlating in our young girls' minds character being connected to form, you see? When in fact, they're often not. This is a problem so common in our culture that when you're uh, checking out in a grocery store, you'll pass many magazines that present airbrushed cultural depictions of beauty. If it helps, Dr. Albert Muller has helped me a lot. He gave me two words to differentiate the two. Here's what they are. Things that only our culture calls beautiful but actually aren't, he likes to call pretty. I like that. The things that are true and good, he calls beauty. For example, if you airbrush what someone looks like and put it on a magazine. It's not true, therefore it's not beautiful. So at most, it's pretty. But a child who God created, who has a Down syndrome face, who's presented in truth and goodness, is beautiful, you see? Therefore, what our culture might call beauty isn't, because beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, it's in the eye of the creator. The creator knows what beauty is. And we have to recover what it is because we tend to willfully run after pretty lies. This culture tells us, or this text tells us then how to evaluate culture. So my second application from this passage would be a truth grid exists to evaluate culture. And Christians need to know it and use it. 
In John 17, verse 17, Jesus was praying for us. He was praying for those who would become followers of his. And he said this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. My niece uh, wants to be an artist one day. She's 15 years old, and it was her birthday this week. And so last weekend, she came here, and the ladies on her side of the family took her to the North Carolina Museum of Art. And she was amazed at all the different pictures she saw and all the things she saw. My wife told me about some of the things that were there, too, and, and showed me a picture of one of the paintings she saw. Now, in the, one of the paintings she showed me, and I won't give too many details to it. You'll have to look it up on, on your own. In the painting, there's a woman holding a decapitated woman's head and walking through, like, flowers or something like that. How are we supposed to receive something like that? Is that a good image or a bad image? For thousands of years, Christians have written really thorough critiques or taxonomies to help you know if art is good or bad. Augustine had some really good ones. More recently, Schaefer has some good ones. You can look all those up later. But if you had verse 8, how would you evaluate that painting? Is what it's presenting morally true? Is it worthy of respect? Is it righteous? Is it pure? Does it taint the conscience? Is it lovely? Maybe you could argue it is. It's technically excellent. It's painted very well. Is it admirable? Maybe you could argue it is. People speak well of it, but then notice there's two qualifiers. Does it have true excellence? Is it worthy of praise? See, this verse could do very well to help us think when we partake of culture. I, for the record, am not arguing that we should throw out all the arts. (laughs) Not my position at all. But let's enjoy them discerningly. Through the lens of the gospel. Through the lens of what's true, what's honorable, what's right, what's just, what's actually excellent and worthy of praise. For some raised in evangelical traditions, they were told that the only stance we have towards culture is to reject it outright. Uh, I read a very interesting article by Trevin Wax, and he said growing up in a very conservative Southern Baptist home, he was not allowed to read Encyclopedia Brown unless with a black marker he had put out all the times it said gee or gosh. So he was raised in the, in the reject culture completely model. But verse 8 tells us there are things that are lovely, and there are things that are admirable. And sometimes things produced even by secular culture unwittingly reveal gospel truth. Think of how many movies you've seen that have a story of self-sacrifice or redemption. But what we shouldn't forget is that anything we partake of in culture, we need to do with careful consideration. Because normally, the things that are most dangerous for us are not the surface things that you can erase with a Sharpie marker, (laughs) but the worldviews underneath them. Hedonism, relativism, Materialism, to name but a few. So, brothers and sisters, think carefully about what is true, what is righteous, what is honorable, what is actually lovely and worthy of praise. As Christians, then, let us partake of culture and entertainment, not with blind consumption, but with careful consideration. Number one, then, good thoughts, verse eight. But now number two, Best practices, verse 9. Look in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard 
and seen in me, and here's our second verb, practice these things. If you work in the education field, if you have children, if you lead in society or in the church, I don't think I could think of a better verse to explain how formation happens. How do people learn? Look in verse 9. They receive instruction, but they also learn through imitation. That's how all people have always learned, through instruction and imitation, through what someone says, but also through what someone does. Think about your own parents. You learned through what they told you, and you caught what they were really passionate about. This is how it always works. Imagine a young lady who now has moved out of the home and moved out, and she's on her own. And she decides to finally cook that meal that was the best meal that mom taught them to cook. What are the two things she's going to do? She's maybe going to pull out the recipe, the instruction, but then she's going to try to remember what she saw mom do, or she'll FaceTime mom, or whatever she has to do, so that she can do both, instruction and imitation. This is how people are formed. This is how disciples are formed, by the way. Let me give some comments about what that means for church. Do not think you can be everything you need to be as a follower of Christ if you only have one of those two. If you only hear instruction, but aren't around other Christians in close relationship, you will only have 50% of your formation. If you like social interaction, but you don't enjoy instruction, you'll only have 50% of your discipleship. You need instruction and imitation. In so many ways, as a church, we have to think about how to best create avenues for that. But notice, this is how people change and are formed and grow. Now, all the thoughts that we've been given in verse 8, and all the practices that we've been given in verse 9, they actually culminate in a person. So look now at the end of verse 9. After all these thoughts in verse 8, And this instruction and imitation in verse 9, notice it says, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you notice how close that is in verbiage? You have your Bible open. Look in a few verses earlier in Philippians 4, verse 7. After telling us not to be anxious but to pray, the Bible promises the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Did you notice the order is inversed here? In verse 9. In verse 9, it's not the peace of God. It's the God of peace. Why? Because verse 8 and verse 9 are pointing you to a person. What's true? What's lovely? What's noble? What's admirable? What's worthy of praise? The answer? Jesus. If you walked into a barn on a sunny day where it had some loose boards up top, inside the barn, you would see a ray of light coming through the center, as Lewis has illustrated. You'd probably see dust glowing up in that beam. But the source of it would have to be traced up beyond the barn to the sun. This text gives us things in the beam, good thoughts, good practices, But they're worthless unless you trace them up to where they emanate from. They emanate from the God of peace. They emanate from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth in a world of hostile lies and moral confusion. Revelation 5 tells us 
Jesus is worthy of honor and glory forever because though he's a lion, he gave his life as a lamb for our sins. Jesus is righteous. My favorite verse in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus' righteousness is what clothes our unrighteousness. Jesus is pure. He's the thrice holy God, too pure to even look at evil. And yet he took the world's impurity in his body to deal with it on the cross. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is admirable. And he needs no qualifications. He's altogether lovely. He is perfectly commendable. Nothing else is. You see, today we need to behold the glory in the person The person is the God of peace, and that person is Jesus. This morning, I have to tell you, because love speaks the truth. If you've not yet come to know that person, you have no ground for peace. In order for the God of peace to be with you, you have to lay down your hostility. The Bible tells us that our minds are hostile to God. That in our flesh, we reject the truth of God. So the first step for you today is to notice the beam of glory and to gaze up that beam with repentance. That's the beauty that I've been rejecting, but I will reject it no more. God, forgive me and save me. This is the beam of glory that Christ is. But Christian, who have come to Christ, let me remind us, God does not love us because we are good. God loves us though we are bad, but his love does now make us more and more good. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the Christian knows any good he does comes from Christ inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us, just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. So let our thoughts and let our practices look like the sun who is shining on us. And to the extent that they're not, let us do the hard, uncomfortable thing today and say, God, help me. Help me turn from the thoughts that I've been so quickly going towards and the practices that have so defined me and let them be defined and shaped by you. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, you know better than anyone and better even than myself how often my thoughts are bitter or angry or selfish. Lord, how, how embarrassing it would be for all my thoughts to be laid bare this morning because far too often they are self-centered and frustrating and failing to see your goodness and mercy. So Lord, I need this passage over and over and over I thank you first of all, Lord, that though we are great sinners, you loved us enough to send your perfect son who can take away all our sin because he alone is the perfect purity, loveliness, and commendable person. He is the God of peace. And Lord, I pray that peace would be experienced by someone today who's never laid down their sinfulness and looked up to the glory of God's son. 
May they this morning call out for salvation, realizing that their thoughts that are sinful are seen by a holy God who must stand opposed to them. But He will forgive them if they come and find forgiveness through faith. But Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters. May we be careful because in our world, many things are presented as good that are not good. Many things are presented as pure that are impure. Many things are presented as righteous that are vile and disgusting. May we recognize these things as harmful and may we not harm others by clapping as they are on the road to destruction. So Lord, give us the grace to recognize that what you've told us is good is actually good and everything else is wrong and harmful. So make our thoughts, renew our minds, help us to take every thought captive to Christ. And may we receive the instruction and imitation that we need so that we can be conformed to his image. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.